It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Tom Carlson, CEO and Executive Director of eCatalyst. Tom has been a serial entrepreneur for more than 20 years, and he co-founded or founded six businesses in both the U.S. and overseas in fields as diverse as construction, graphic design, and water bottling. He has an extensive cross-cultural background, which includes living 10 years in the Middle East, traveling with significant cultural exposure in over 50 countries, and operating at different times in four other languages. He is fluent in Arabic. Before starting eCatalyst, Tom trained on the MIT method of entrepreneurship set up for for-profit ecosystems with life, the Leadership Institute for Entrepreneurs. He has a BA from Cornell University in mathematics, psychology, and religion, and graduated summa cum laude with a Master of Divinity from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He lives in Colorado Springs with his wife, Stephanie, and his two amazing red-headed kids. Tom Carlson, welcome into the corner office. Thanks so much, Brent. Appreciate it being here. Ah, great to have you today. We we met in Palm Beach. Gosh, it's been almost a month ago, I guess, two, three weeks on our regular Wednesday morning Palm Beach men's group. And I was just right. absolutely enthralled with what you're doing at eCatalyst. And we'll get to that uh, sooner or later, dear listeners. But uh, we always like to start, Tom, with uh, understanding a little bit about our guest background and you know, hearing a little bit about the early life. So tell us a Hi. little bit about where you grew up and what that uh, early family life was like. Sure. Yeah. And no, I grew up in uh, Athens, Georgia, actually. So yeah. this was um, lifelong UGA fan. Um, yep. I, was, uh, I was UGA fan long before, uh, <laughs> long before they before got they became big. Years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so in fact, I was telling my son that, uh, that he is, I was his age the last time UGA won their uh, national championship back nice. in the Walker days. Nice. So it's kind of fun to see that cycle come back around. But uh, yeah, I, I grew up, uh, so I grew up in Georgia. I grew up in a um, family, a church going family, not necessarily, yeah. um, not necessarily believers, Got but it. we went to, went to an Episcopal church every Sunday. It was a fairly moderate Episcopal church. Yeah. And um, I actually came to the Lord through a uh, eighth grade Sunday school teacher. Yeah, awesome. uh, this was a guy that uh, was a charismatic believer that was hanging out in the Episcopal church just to see if he could save a few on the way. 
And, uh, <laughs> good for him. As, as I, good. Looking for fertile soil. Exactly. So I, as, as I remember it, and I, 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 I'm not sure that I remember this exactly right, but, but as I remembered in my eighth grade brain, uh, there was a substitute. It, the, the, the eighth grade Sunday school teacher had to quit at the last minute, and this was the only guy that was available. So they said, oh, okay, all right, we'll let him do it. And nice. it changed my life. So, nice. That's awesome. What does mom and dad do? So my father is a mathematics professor um, and a quite a quite a good one though. That was was he at know. UGA? Is that is that why you he were was there? at UGA? He was no, teaching at UGA, but he uh, he retired from teaching so he could just do research, Got which it. means that he travels all over the world, sits in rooms, and thinks with people. Nice. Um, but uh, he is yeah he's one of these guys that there's twelve or thirteen people in the world who who know what he's talking about hmm. most of the time. Cool. So, but nobody else does because it's math and, <laughs> it's and nobody math, right. understands, you know, Einstein, at least you could say, well, he figured out the light bends around the sun and, and everybody can go, oh yeah, light bends around the sun. <laughs> nobody can figure out what math does. It doesn't apply to anything. It's just math, you know? So, um, so yeah. And my, uh, my mom was, a, I guess, professional house uh, yeah. homemaker, but she did a lot of stuff with our school. She worked in a, did a talent and gifted program, kids program for, yeah. um, for a while. And um, yeah. So brothers, brothers and sisters. I have one sister, one younger sister. sister. She's a yeah. year and a half younger. What kind of lessons do you remember from mom and dad uh, growing up or, or maybe even grandparents? I mean, I think my, my parents, again, even though they weren't believers, they, they really did value church. And I, and I think, um, there was something about that that really made a difference. I had an uncle, my, my father's sister's husband was a navigator. He was, um, a guy named Noel Nelson. He was, uh, he had been in Sweden for a number of years, taking his family to Kenya and then was living in Atlanta. And we would go up there every so often. And he, somewhere around high school, he started discipling me as good yeah. navigators do. Right. Um, and uh, I mean, he was he was a dyed in the wool navigator. He wanted to go through the Second Timothy two seven series and <laughs> wanted to um, like like memorize all the verses and everything else. And it was um, we didn't because we were far enough away. We didn't have as regular a time together. But I I just. I think he was one of those guys that, that really helped me understand what discipleship really looked mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And actually the eighth grade Sunday school teacher continued to disciple me all the way through, uh, through high school as well. Nice. So your, uh, your earliest mentors. Huh? Yeah, they really were. They were, yeah. they were my earliest and, and both of them were odd birds in their own way, but they were, they were also quality, quality people. Mm-hmm. Um, my eighth grade Sunday school teacher used to pick me up in his lime green Cadillac and we would drive <laughs> around and look at real estate while we would talk about, uh, about God and the Bible and everything else that, and we'd go and eat Chinese food at the same Chinese restaurant every single time. I, wow. I don't know why he picked that, but, uh, he was a, he was a very large white man and, <laughs> but he, he liked his Chinese food. <laughs> he liked his Chinese so. food. <laughs> I love that. Were you a good student in school time? I was a pretty good student. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I mean, I, I, I I think I got to be a much better student once I got to college. Um, right. And I actually, I did I did quite well in college. And then my master's degree, I did very, very well. Um, so I think I got better as time went on. Lately. But it was, yeah, it was, it was one of the, I think I was looking for my motivation. I, I really yeah, didn't right. know why I was studying. I was studying in order to get the grades, but that really yeah. wasn't enough. And by the time I got to seminary, which is what my master's degree was in, 
I knew why I wanted to study and passion. that, and that made, yeah. that made all the difference in the world. Yeah. What kind of things did you do outside of class during those elementary and high school years? Uh, I played in the band. I played trumpet. Yeah. Um, cool. I, um, gosh, what else did I do? I played, I played soccer at various different times. Yeah. Um, did a lot with, uh, like summer camp stuff. So like all through college, I, I ran summer camps. Nice. Were they um, those Christian camps or were they? Uh, most of them were Christian were, camps. Yeah. A lot of yeah. them were coming out of either Episcopal churches. Um, it's interesting. Back, this was before the Anglican Episcopal split, but there was, um, there were still a lot, especially in the youth programs, there was a lot of really good evangelical stuff happening in the Episcopal Church. Right. Um, and then I think when when the Anglican sort of church split out of the Episcopal Church, I think the Episcopal Church has kind of gone downhill a lot since then. Right. But it was still, you know, there was a lot. My youth group in high school was was an Episcopal youth group, but it was, we called it PPP. It was the polyphilo progeny. It was uh, a <laughs> Greek for many yeah. loving children. And, um, but it was just a, it was just a solid group of, of kids. And uh, we did a, there was a thing called happening, which is, I don't know if your listeners may know about Curcio, but happening is guys, basically the high school version of Curcio. It's a sort of a renewal weekend. Hmm. And when I went on that, that's where I really found Christian community for the first time. Like nice. like a bunch of other high school students who were on fire for Jesus, who really wanted to understand what what following God looked like, and uh, and just were were excited to be followers of Christ. And right. it right. it that was that was a powerful powerful time in my life as well. Very influential. So, yeah. 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 You obviously are a, a multiple time serial entrepreneur. What what kind of entrepreneurial things were you doing when you were a kid? Um, you know, when I was a kid, I, I mean, I I mowed lawns a bit. I um, we uh, my friends and I we hustled a few different jobs in in a couple of different places. Um, I think I first when I got to college, I think was, was really the first job that I found that I really truly enjoyed. And that was, right. I was working in the outdoor club. Um, yes. and so basically I was leading rock climbing trips and caving trips and all sorts of other things like every weekend. Um, it was the, it was the first time that I'd gotten all my work study hours in <laughs> without, right. you know, even overdid it some, but I, I don't know that I really found my entrepreneurial, groove until until a little bit later on in life i think so that was really, your passion yeah, yeah I, I really my passion at the time had been more on ministry and i, I really wanted right. to work with i felt a calling to the poor early on um i felt like and i didn't even know what that meant at the beginning right. i had i had no idea what that really looked like um it wasn't really until i got out of my master's program i, I did about five years of social work i was working with um doing a therapeutic camping program, working with troubled teens down south of Raleigh in North Carolina. Mm. Uh, we were building our own shelters and living in them year round. It was some of the best leadership training I had ever done. Um, it wasn't entrepreneurial, but it was it was leadership in a, in a very significant way and a really challenging kind of leadership because it was challenging kids. I mean, we take take 30-day canoe trips and this kind of thing with these kids that Nice. would just be screaming their heads off at night sometimes, you know, um, <laughs> but I learned to love them, you know, and there was, there was a part of that, that um, I think it really changed not only the way that I led, I think it changed the way that I 
I knew how to love somebody because yeah. yeah. I could look at a kid and say, Johnny, I am so angry at you right now because you're doing things that is ruining our relationship. Mm. And I want a good relationship with you. So I am angry, you know, and to be able to say that to him in a way that says, I'm angry because I love you. Yeah. You know? right, and that's, right. there's a, there's a power in that, that I think was, was really exciting to understand and to really be able to incorporate in, in leadership. And formative um, for your later work, which we'll get to in a minute. It really you, was. Yeah. You, you um, went to Cornell, no, no slacker of a university. So you must've gotten some <laughs> good grades in high school. What, I, I did, I, like I said, I did reasonably well. So yeah. <laughs> what, why did you choose Cornell? Um, at the time, I think it was, uh, it seemed like a good school. <laughs> Right. I really, you know, again, I, I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do at, back at that time. I knew I, I wanted to do some kind of ministry. I was studying math for no particular reason. Uh, I think Other than that's, that's what, what dad did. That's so. what dad did. And I was really good at it. I mean, I, I, I could actually do it without a lot of, you know, effort. Right. Um, but by the time I hit my junior, senior year, I realized, you know, that's that's not enough of a reason to just yeah. go into math. I, yeah. You know, I, I realized that I really wanted to be with people and a lot of the math majors in Cornell were not, <laughs> they were not people, people. Right, um, right. So I put them in a room was, and slip, slip formulas underneath their door. <laughs> yes. They would, they would rather do math and bathe most of, most of the time. Right, so, um, right. uh, so you, you obviously was a few years before you went to seminary. What, what was that first job you took out of Cornell and why? Oh, this was that therapy and camping program I was telling you yeah. about. So this yeah. was, um, uh, again, south of Raleigh, uh, North Carolina, we, it was, um, a Southern Baptist program. Mm -hmm. So good Christian program. Um, but it was intense. It was an intense program. We were on five days a week, 24 hours a day for, wow. you know, and then we'd have a sort of an, an, um, uh, time off cabin, but then we'd go on 30 day canoe trips where we wouldn't get any time off. And, um, and we were working with really difficult kids. So, yeah. It was. Now, were they? Were they? Um, did they come from poor areas? Were they actually Christian kids themselves? What, what, what was they. Their there was a mix. Uh, we yeah. got some from DSS. We got some of them from, like a, a church that would say, "Hey, this kid is really need some help" or something like that. Um, so there was there was a, quite a mixture of of sources that we got these kids from, but they would all get into the system and, and basically we take them off of whatever medication they were on, unless mm. there was something that was life, you know, unless it was an actual medical condition, but any of the psychotropic stuff, we would take them off of all of that. And then everything was group work. So mm -hmm. it was all about two counselors, 10 kids, and then we would build a tent together, you know, cut down <laughs> pine poles. And, and, and then if there was a problem, we would huddle up and say, Hey, Johnny, what's going on? He'd say, well, Paul's doing this. And, you know, and we'd have to work it out. Say, guys, what do you guys feel about Johnny and Paul having this problem? And, mm -hmm. oh, we don't like it. You know, and it just, that kind of, we're going to function as a group. We're not going to function at all. How and, many, how many kids were in the group and how many leaders were there? So two, two leaders, 10 leaders. kids. 10 kids. Um, yeah. And um, it was, so yeah, so my when my leader went off, my my co-counsel went off. I was I was on by myself and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so we would have to, up to 10 kids by ourselves. Um, yeah. But because well, it was- 5 to 1 would be a challenge enough, 10 to 1. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if it, if it wasn't for the program, the program worked in such a way that it really was done as a group. So we yeah. would get yeah. something started. And if there was a problem, we'd pull everybody back together. And if we All couldn't right. solve the problem there, then we'd go out into the woods a little bit and talk about it there. And if we still couldn't do it, we'd go out into the woods a little bit farther and sit All down. Right. And we were going to sit there through lunch and dinner if we needed to, and uh, you know, whatever it until, takes, and whatever it takes until we solve yeah. the problem. Yeah. And at some point or another, the group would get motivated to say, "Okay, we need to solve this problem." <laughs> we're we're not getting out of here until this is solved. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it really, it really was an effective program, and it and it was amazing the changes that we saw in the kids. The kids really yeah. did grow a lot, and the leaders grew a lot. I mean, yeah. I. Right. I still look back at that time and think, man, I am, I can't, I can't imagine a better kind of leadership training school than, than that was. In a lot what of were some of the leadership lessons you took away from that experience, Tom? Well, um, I think I told you before that, you know, the, the capacity to be angry or frustrated at something and still love the person in the yeah. middle of it. I think yeah. that's a huge thing. I think as leaders, I, I see too many leaders in the U.S. right now on both sides who get who delve into not just anger but almost hatred of the other side, mm. and I don't think that's I don't think it's helpful, and I don't think it's Christian. You it's, know, not I feel, it's not biblical. It's not biblical, right? Sure. I mean, there's there's a way to be angry at another person's positioning or ideas yeah. without hating the person. Right. And horrible. I think I think we've got to find a way to do that in yeah. in American politics. Well, and, yeah. and not just there but globally too, right? Absolutely. You've Absolutely. got some experience with that. Yeah. So, you went on a seminary, and it looks like uh -huh. you know, a couple of years, four, four four or five years I guess after you graduated. Yeah. You chose Gordon uh, Conwell Theological Seminary. What, uh -huh. what was your thinking behind that? Uh, Gordon, it was, that was a God thing. I, I, mm -hmm. I looked at Gordon Conwell. I looked at Fuller. I looked at Trinity Evangelical out in Chicago and, um, and really narrowed it down to Gordon Conwell and Trinity. Um, and then was going to, was leaning towards Trinity, but I kept trying to find people that I could talk to who had been to Trinity. Um, and, uh, every person I went to Ravi Zacharias had been to Trinity. And so I mm -hmm. called Ravi Zacharias's office and said, Hey, could I talk to Mr. Zacharias about mm -hmm. Trinity? And uh, the guy's like, well, he's not here, but I went to Gordon Conwell. And, and this happened like over and over wow. where like every time I try to talk to somebody about Gordon, about Trinity, I wound up talking to somebody from <laughs> Gordon Conwell. I finally went to Gordon Conwell and was just smitten. And I felt like, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't need, I never actually visited Trinity. Right, right. <laughs> so it was just, uh, it was a God thing for sure. Did you look but, at Fuller as well? I did look at Fuller. My sister went to Fuller actually. Right. Um, and um yeah, I think I, I, I yeah, I, I can't remember exactly why I ruled that out, but I, I remember ruling Fuller out fairly. God, God early wasn't out. pointing yeah. in that direction. It just wasn't pointing in the right, and it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't about Fuller as a school. Yeah, sure. It was more the context and everything else. So. The confirmation, and then yeah. what did you use? You went right into campus ministry after that, correct? I went into campus ministry for yeah, just about a year. I was yeah. um, I I had a guy that kind of recruited me into the Navigators. Uh, because I wanted to go overseas. I wanted to go to the Middle East. 
And his message, his recruitment message was, well, why don't we, you know, we were losing a leader at BU. BU had just gotten started in the NAB ministry. We need somebody to sort of take over and to sort of babysit it for a little while. Mm-hmm. You want to get into navigators. Why don't you spend a year babysitting the navigator ministry at BU and then you can go overseas? Dude. And we said, okay. <laughs> so that's what I did. Um, so you, and- you had a, you, when you, we met a few weeks ago, you said you had an early attraction to the Middle East and you, was, yes. you studied and learned Arabic. What, what kind of generated that? What, what, what uh, brought that about? Well, I, I wanted to go to the, pl- I mean, I felt a commitment through seminary to the lost, you know, to, to places that are truly unreached. Um, and, you know, when I, and I, I, I feel like calling people lost to some extent, I know f- I, I tend to like look at it from the way that people would hear that. And I feel like that can be a little condescending, but I, but I do mm-hmm. think that there's a place where there's something about the, the gospel as you and I know that is so transformative and yeah. I want people to, to have the option of considering it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I can even go to my Muslim friends and say, look, I, I know you don't get this and I know that this is, there's history here, but I really just want you to consider this. This is mm. something that that's worth that's worth thinking about, and it's meant it's meant something to me. So, you know, I I felt like um, I actually did a like a seven month trip around. Basically, it was a, all the way a full lap around the world. Uh, started in the Middle East. I assumed I was going to be in Southeast Asia someplace. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, and again, this was just kind of random. Oh, it looked kind of interesting. Um, went to India for about four months, lived in Varanasi, which is uh, sort of the Mecca of Hinduism in a lot of ways wow. that I thought was just fascinating stuff. I just, it was, um, really fell in love with the, with the culture there in some ways. Uh, and then went to Southeast Asia, and I realized as much as I, Thailand is a beautiful place, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, gorgeous areas. Um, I, there's also this a very strong saving face culture, yeah. and I tend to be kind of in your face <laughs> as my personality right, a little bit. Right, right. Um, and I just realized, man, I'm going to be a bull in a china shop. I, I'm going to be doing <laughs> anything, anything but bearing witness to Jesus in in this kind of context. Well, the Especially Arabs kind of have that too, though. The Arabs have that saving face. It's maybe they not quite they as do, but it's. But- it's different. It's different yeah. with the Arabs. They can, they can get loud and argue about politics right. and everything else, but it's all, it's always about something that's over there. And as yeah. soon as the right. argument's over, we, we give each other a big hug and, you know, yeah. we proclaim our love for each other. And we're, we're still just as good friends as we were at the beginning of it. As long as the argument is about each other, you know, right. and that's right. part of the way the Arabs do it is that they don't say they save face in any kind of direct confrontation, but they have no problem talking loudly about politics all day long, you know, right, right. which is, which is really kind of a fun part of the culture. So I felt like I could jump into that in a way that we can just get into these heated discussions, yeah. you know, but at the same time we love each other, you know, and I just, I just, that was just a great part of that culture. And it was followed actually by some time where you were working in business in that part of the world, right? Yeah. I mean, really, when I got out of seminary, I I knew I probably needed to start learning, you know, business because I was going to be overseas. And so I started a graphic design company um, and found that I was, you know, I did it more as a business person doing graphic design, wound up hiring graphic designers, but found I was really good at it and, and really enjoyed it. Um, and so by the time I got to the Middle East, I wasn't just doing business because I wanted to 
have something to do or an identity that I could lean into. I really wanted to do business. And the more that we got into it, the more I realized too, that if you're going to an unreached area and you just put up a sign, you know, a shingle over a, over an office someplace, people around you know it, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they see what you're doing. You may fool the government, but you're not going to fool your neighbor. You know, the right. neighbor can look at you and say, you're not making any money. <laughs> <laughs> How are you living here? You know, and, right. and there, there's a disingenuousness about that reality. So if you're not genuinely doing business, people sense an inauthenticity about who you are. Particularly realized, in that part of the world. Particularly in that part of the world. Yeah. So there, there really was a sense in which I wanted to be a businessman, not just in name, but in process. And so I wanted doing some construction. I also started a water bottling business with uh, an Emirati and an Omani guy. We probably investigated 10 or 10 or 15 other businesses as well. Mm. But um, that construction business took me all over the Middle East. Um, I'm selling acoustic walls and ceilings for Owens Corning, half a dozen other um, companies that I was had in my portfolio. Um, And it was a fantastic business because we got into some of the biggest hospitals and Putter, we got into this huge theater in Beirut, a couple of the airports. Mm. There's a lot of building going on in the Gulf. And even though it didn't take a huge amount of my time, because we got into these great projects, I could go into a room full of business guys and say, oh, yeah, we did the Dubai airport. And they're like, oh, oh. now all like, <laughs> got their attention. You know? And it, yeah. <laughs> it really did provide a sense of identity for, for who I was and what I was doing. Yeah. Awesome. And you lived a total of about 10, 12 years in the Middle East, off and on, obviously, but you were in UAE and Dubai. Mm-hmm. What, what was kind of your total time on the ground down there? So we were almost 10 years. We, we were years. beginning of 2006 until the end of 2015. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and yeah, we, were, we lived primarily in Oman, which is just across right. the border from UAE, but about an hour and a half from Dubai. Were you in Muscat or, or in another? No, no, no. Muscat, is, Muscat was actually four hours away from us. So oh, Oman is a much larger country than, yeah. than the Emirates is. Um, but, and we were right on the border with the Emirates. So we were much closer to Dubai, even though we were in the next country over. Got it. Got it. Cool. And um, is that where you learned Arabic or had you studied it in the U.S. before going over? I really hadn't studied much of it. I, yeah. I studied some before I got there, but... Um, Arabic's a strange language. There's really kind of two Arabics. There's the formal Arabic, which everything, like all the newscasts are in, all the presidential speeches, Bugs right. Bunny, you know what I mean? Right. You know, anything that's that's formally done is going to be in this very formal Arabic, but nobody speaks that on the street. Right. So you have to learn the formal if you're going to read anything or if you're going to right. write anything or if you're going to listen to anything official, but the spoken has to be learned place by place. And is it different in each place? I know Egyptian. It is very different yeah. and you know is the it was the arabic different in dubai than it was in oman not so much i mean across the gulf there were there were minor differences there were uh-huh. definitely regional differences we could you could hear in the pronunciation um Dijaj means chicken in in arabic and in the emirates they would say dayaya and in muscat they would say dagaga um so it, it <laughs> it'd be hard to know what you're eating in anyone right, exactly you know <laughs> so there, there were some differences in pronunciation but um but really you saw a much bigger difference like if you went to lebanon or if you went to egypt yeah. um baghdad I, I was in baghdad a while back and baghdad the arabic was completely different because it was mixed with a lot of farsi sure. so um so yeah, so it's it's. I think the Gulf is a little bit closer to a lot of the the formal Arabic, which made it 
both easier and easier for me to speak to kind of anybody else listening, whether or not I could understand them as well. How did your ministry kind of, you know, weave its way through all the businesses that you were running and setting up in that part of the world? Well, I mean, again, I, I feel like, I think my view of what ministry looks like changed as I, I went on. I, I think, you know, there's this idealism when you first go over on the mission field, quote unquote, where you have this idea that you're there to, you know, convert somebody or something like that. And I think right. as, as I went along, I realized more and more, this is a, this is the work of the Holy spirit. This isn't me. Right. Um, I'm here to participate in God's work. And secondly, you know, ministry is not just what you do with your words. It's what you do with everything. Mm. Um, so, and, um, and how you're observed as well. Yeah. And how you're observed. Yeah. And, and I mean, I feel like, you know, my wife and I had prayed through Jeremiah 29 um, and not 11 where, you know, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord. That's, that's the one that everybody has their life verse on. But before that, Jeremiah is really talking about to the exiles, to the people who are about to be exiles and saying, look, you guys are, you guys are going, (laughs) exile is coming. You know, it's not even all your fault. It's all your, your fathers and your grandfathers and it's all their fault, but exile is about to happen. But when you get there, the peace of that land will be your peace. The prosperity of that land will be your prosperity. Mm. So pray for the peace of that land and bear witness to who God is in the way that you contribute to that society. Mm. And I, and I felt like that's, you know, even as even says, you know, give, give your daughters away in marriage and take, take daughters for your sons, that this is, this is a life wide thing and it's life on life. And whether our calling is to love people, whether or not they ever receive the message of the gospel, that's right. we, we've got to love them first. If they receive it, it's even a greater love because I'm giving them something which is so valuable to me and of such, of such transformative power towards me. But even if they don't, our calling is no less than to love. So I just felt like, you know, that's what, that's the way that I want to think about ministry is loving people in a way that really makes them glad that I'm there. That's awesome. So uh, we mentioned in the introduction, you're CEO and executive director of eCatalyst. That's how kind of you and I got introduced. You're telling us about That's that. That's right. Uh, want to hear about that, but tell us what kind of led you to eCatalyst because it's a very, very unique nonprofit slash for-profit, <laughs> if I can say yes, that, that's organization. True. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, this, this goes all the way back to my time. Um, I think I told this story at the, uh, at the, at the Florida uh, men's group, but um you know, it goes all the way back to my time where I just felt like I, I wanted to work with the poor. And it was kind of insane that I wound up in the Gulf, which is, <laughs> there's some of the wealthiest people in the world there, right, you know, and right, I, right. I, there were several times I'd be sitting in this room full of, you know, young professionals, and I'd be looking around and thinking, these guys have more money than I'm ever going to see. Um, <laughs> what are you doing with me here, God? You know, I, I mean, I thought I was supposed to be going to the poor. And we could talk about spiritually poor or something else, but it just didn't feel like it was the, it was the same thing. But um, going back my junior year, I went, I went to Haiti uh, and this was, this was a kind of a, uh, a desire, you know, I, this is me wanting to go out and serve the poor somehow or another. And I was going to find them dog on it and I was going (laughs) to, I was going to serve them somehow. Um, 
And so I wrote a letter that wrote to a person in my church who wrote a letter to a pastor, who wrote a letter to another pastor, and then it came back up the chain. And then, uh, and they said, basically, yeah, show up with the sign. Um, so I flew down there and showed up with the sign, which turns out I didn't need it because I was the only white guy in the plane. Right. Um, and then I got driven four hours up into the mountains in Haiti, mm-hmm. uh, where I then had to figure out what I was doing there because mm-hmm. <laughs> I had no idea as a, a young 20 something guy. Um, mm-hmm. But I taught English. I taught music. I wound up learning Creole. Creole is extremely easy language as opposed to Arabic, which is a much more very, very difficult language. I actually preached in Creole by the time I was done. Um, But uh, my English teaching was horrible. I I really did a very, very bad job. Um, And uh, But my biggest inspiring story was this – was, was something I just never imagined. It was, I was sitting around after an English class with a couple of teenage guys. So these guys were like three or four years younger than I was. Um, and I was supposedly ministering to them. Um, and we we're talking about, well, what do you want to be, you know, when you grow up as it were? And I said, I want to work with moon keep off people who are poor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still remember that phrase. And they said, great. What are you going to do? <laughs> And I realized that nobody's ever asked me that question right. before. Yeah, and, and here step. I am yeah. trying to teach yeah. English and I, and I'm really bad at it. Um, so that's probably not what I need to do. So, so what, what do I do? Um, and this began something of a 30 year journey of trying to figure out, well, wh- what do I do? What, what am I really offering people? Cause these guys, my, I think I had built it, bought into this fantasy, you know, the, the, the videos where you see a white guy show up at a African village and all the Africans are very, very, very happy. And it just seems like everything has just gotten better because the white guy showed up. And that was my fantasy. I thought, you know, I'm just need to show up and things are just going to get better uh, because I'm an American and I'm white or whatever. Um, and I realized these guys sitting in front of me, they didn't want my fantasy. Mm. They, they didn't, they didn't want to be a part of a fantasy of mine. Um, they wanted things to be different. And it wasn't just that they wanted stuff, though they would be happy to take stuff. If I could give them food and they'd be less hungry in their poverty, or I could get them a new roof for their, for their hut, which right. means that they would be drier in their poverty. But their situation wasn't changing. Yeah. And what these guys wanted more than anything else was that the situation could be different because the problem with poverty is not just that you're poor. It's not just that you lack stuff. It's that there's no hope. It's not just, you know, poor is the lack of stuff. Poverty is the lack of hope. It's Mm. the, it's the fact that I live on a dirt floor hut. My kids are going to live on a dirt floor hut. My grandkids are going to live on a dirt floor hut. Nothing is ever going to change because we have no way out. That's what poverty really does. And so I realized, man, if I'm going to do something like these guys are asking me to do, I want to do something that's going to change Mm. things. I want to provide something that, you know, not in some kind of colonialist or condescending way, but in a sense of, is there something that I can do that would really help them transform their own lives? And I think that's where eCatalyst really came out was after having done all this business and realizing that I'm actually really good at business, that transformation, business, entrepreneurship, 
changes people because it gives them a sense of identity. It gives them a sense of who they are as right. people. It gives them a sense of dignity and purpose rather than giving them a handout where they feel like, oh, good, the white guy gave me something again. Now I can <laughs> live a little bit longer. I'll come back you know, when they come back. Yeah. Nobody likes to be dependent. Yeah. Nobody yeah. wants to wait for somebody else to come along to make life better. People want to make their own lives better. And these guys wanted that. I think most people want that. So I feel like this is what entrepreneurship does. And so eCatalyst, to some extent, what we're talking about is entrepreneurial ecosystems. And what that means is not just starting some businesses, especially as a, as a you know expat worker coming in and starting a business of yours that you can then hire some people, mm-hmm. helping them start their businesses, but not just helping them start one business or two businesses or three businesses, but trying to create an environment where business creation becomes possible for everybody. Mm-hmm. Because then you can create viral business growth and you can start seeing real transformation. That's what the entrepreneurial ecosystem does. It's, it's like the Petri dish in, in biology class in eighth grade when you know, it's not just planting one piece of fungi here, there, elsewhere. It's mm-hmm. about letting the environment just create spontaneous bubbling growth. If you can do that with entrepreneurship, create jobs, create wealth, create ownership, now you're starting to really change poverty. For Great story. I mean, I love that whole thing. And sure. as you know, and we I was just enraptured by it because so often, you know, when you hear the nonprofit pitch, it's okay, we need to give, give, give. Mm-hmm. And then you always wonder, gosh, what happens and what the changes are. Right. So so you went to Ethiopia uh-huh. and, and pick up the story from there. What, what led you <laughs> to that location and, uh, you know, kind of kicking things off and bring us up to speed on, you know, what the current challenges are with the organization? Sure. Well, I mean, we didn't start in Ethiopia, actually. We've, we've only been around for about three years, but, but we started right. actually in India. We did some online stuff in India, got a chance to try out the some of the programming, realized we really need to do this in person and COVID didn't let us do that, unfortunately, there. But then we did get some stuff going on in in Rwanda inside the Episcopal Church, or not the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church that's there. Um, Believe in great, great body of of people. Don't necessarily get... um, uh, for-profit enterprise, um, right. we, especially in a place like Rwanda, where there's been so much charity sort of poured in, it's really hard to get uh, mindsets rewrapped around the idea of really building something and doing it as a for-profit. Uh, churches tend to want to give money out, um, and they want mm. to do it as charity, and that's not a bad thing. It's just it's not helping create sustainable enterprise. So. Yeah. Um, I think what we really learned there was that we need to build this in the space where the entrepreneurs are and then bring the church alongside rather than the other way around. Um, It's not bringing the entrepreneurs into the church. It's bringing the the church out into the space where the entrepreneurs are. So that's part of what we uh, we felt uh, we learned from Rwanda. We still have got some leaders there that really want to keep moving. And I, I really feel like there's some there's work yet to be done there in Rwanda. And, and I'm looking forward to getting back. But in Ethiopia, we got started in summer of 20, end of end of 2021. Um, we started a couple of big events. Uh, January 2022, we got our first cohort started with 20 entrepreneurs. That cohort is still going on. It's got uh, 12 to 15 uh, entrepreneurs. Several of those are teams. We've got seven businesses that have spun off. 
all of which are beginning to grow and are beginning to look for uh, for investment. Um, well, not all of them are looking for investment. A couple of them are bootstrapping as they should. Um, but it's it's a very exciting process. Um, we've got a great team in Ethiopia too, which is part of the reason that I really like what we're doing there is that the leadership that's there gets the entrepreneurial space and they right. get the space where we're talking about sharing faith, not as preaching or giving out tracts or something like that, but just talking about who we are as believers and as entrepreneurs and why mm-hmm. entrepreneurship. I mean, entrepreneurship is an identity shaking reality. You're, you're taking a risk. You're putting your livelihood and your identity on the line, you know? So there's a real place where entrepreneurs are asking the hard questions of who am I really? What, what is it that's valuable in my life? And so the gospel is a place, you know, I, I feel like the gospel is a place, place that we can share with entrepreneurs that really, they're asking the questions that the gospel is the answer to. And that's what, that's what gets me excited about that. So, um, so yeah, so the Ethiopia, we just feel like we've got the opportunity to build this model. And I can tell you a little bit about that model too, if you want, um, of, uh, of, of, ecosystem development there in Ethiopia right. in a way that I'm just, I'm getting more and more excited about. Yeah. So exciting. Well, we are almost just about out of time, are but we? Okay. Uh, we'll have to save that story for another podcast because <laughs> I hope to be able to join you there someday. Soon. Absolutely. I would love to have you come <laughs> out. Get a man. chance to, to get a feeling for it. I just think it's, you know, teaching them how to fish rather than fishing for them. Absolutely. Right? It's a, a wonderful direction. Well, we always ask our CEO guests, and I'm going to modify this a little bit for us, but you know, you've just been so passionate about this and in, in, in really helping to help others overcome poverty. What, what, what career life advice would you give someone that maybe also has a passion like this and the nonprofit world and in, in, in helping others? What, what would you suggest they do as they think about you know, how they find their path? Well, a couple of different things. Um, first of all, if somebody really wants to uh, get into the nonprofit space, I would say, you know, we've got to we've got to take a really good hard look at our own motivations because there's a real place where, as I was when I was in Haiti, we want to come in as kind of saviors, and we feel like somehow right, we have right. that positional advantage, and that's a bad place to come in. Um, people mm-hmm. will accept that because they want your stuff. But I think what we really need to do is figure out how to get underneath the people we're trying to serve and figure out ways to help them do what it is that they can do to create something. Because when they create it, it'll keep going. If we create it, it's only there as long as we're there. Um, So we really need to help local people, whatever that local is, whether it's Atlanta or whether it's, you know, Ethiopia, help them figure out what it is that they want to build and then help them build that. If we can do that sustainably, especially as business where they're making revenue and therefore able to sustain themselves, then that will continue as long as they, they have the passion for it. Yeah. Love it. Love it, Tom. Well, listen, really appreciate your time. Uh, wonderful, wonderful journey. And uh, well, this is the first stop, first segment. <laughs> I definitely want to hear a lot more sure. as things go by. Tom Carlson, CEO and Executive Director of eCatalyst. Thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. This is uh, this has been an absolute pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.